We want to give you all the praise and all the glory that you are due today. Our clapping, our singing, our thoughts, we've directed them toward you for this first few moments of this service. And Lord, we want to just keep putting our attention on you. For you're worthy of all of our praise. We pray that your word would be on our lips. And today, as Jed brings the message you've put upon his heart for this church, Lord, I pray that we would listen well, that we would receive your words and that they would sink deep within us. We love you so much, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. Team, wasn't that a great way to get started this morning? Well, my name is Jed, and it's a privilege to serve you as one of our pastors on staff. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open those. We're going to be in John chapter 6. This will also be up on the screens momentarily. John chapter 6, verse 40, or excuse me, 66, says this, Because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve do you also wish to go away? Again, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? Now, first service, I thought it was a little bit ironic. We were singing these songs, and it's the power of worship through song that you would be compelled to sing words that might not actually feel true. We sang these words, you're never going to let me down, or great is your faithfulness, you've never failed me yet. And I don't know about you, but many times in my life, I've certainly felt as though God was letting me down, was actively letting me down. There have been moments in my life where I've felt as though he has failed me, and even when I hear those words, you've never failed me yet, it's almost like my subconscious is waiting for him to fail me. And yet, isn't that the power of these songs that we sing, that we hear ourselves communally preaching to what is true, not just what we might feel? But I ought to add something to that. The fact that we have felt those things speaks to the reality that you and I, as human beings, can certainly come to these moments where we almost wish that Jesus were asking us, as he does to the disciples, do you also wish to go away? And we want to reply, yeah, I'm over it. You know, you may be sitting here this morning, and as you hear those words, it's, it's getting to you. For whatever reason, perhaps it was a recent trip to the doctor's office. Or maybe you are watching a family member or a friend, and you feel like you're helplessly watching as they experience something that is troubling. Maybe a relationship is fracturing, or the fact that there is no relationship leaves you in lonely despair. Maybe there's something about the checking account or your third quarter sales plummeting. I don't know what it is, but I can guarantee you that we are not alone in feeling like we don't want to continue pushing forward. And so there's this part in John's gospel, which we just read, that is in fact disheartening and troubling. And if you're wondering what it is that would catalyze mass droves of people to suddenly leave Jesus and then for him to have to ask his disciples if they want to join along with the others and turn their backs on him, it's actually a surprising thing. 
John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says these words, I am the bread of life. That's it. That carbohydrate-laden statement, I am the bread of life, is at the middle of a sermon that pushes people away. And I don't know about you, but I hear Jesus say that, I am the bread of life, and I think about bread, and I really appreciate bread. First service, I said that I would, I think Brett's wife, Cindy, is here. Cindy makes the best homemade bread, and uh, Cindy, if you would feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to make me and our family a loaf sometime soon, that would be greatly appreciated. I love bread, and so I hear this statement, and I think, what is it about that that would be so jarring? Well, as I was preparing for this message, I couldn't help but think about an individual in my life who has been so instrumental in me understanding and appreciating food and what happens around it. There's a man, his name was Hugh Frederick Hughes III. And Hugh Frederick Hughes III was the father of Hugh Frederick Hughes IV, affectionately called Huey. And Huey is my best friend from college, we were roommates together. He was the best man in my wedding. This upcoming Wednesday, I get to see him. I, I love Huey. And Huey's parents became like another set of parents to me while I was in college and since that point. And so mom and pops, they would kindly go grocery shopping for us because we were poor college students. And they would load up our fridge and more like our pantry because we weren't healthy enough to stick things in the fridge. We wanted the stuff that sat on the shelves. And so they would buy us cracked and oat brand and honey O's, and we'd combine those cereals together and eat with our milk in the middle of the night. But we realized we were kindreds when one evening, without prompting the other, we both went for the Oreos, put them in bowls, and poured milk over the Oreos. And we realized that our whole lives... We'd been eating Oreo soup and had found the other who could appreciate that. Who needs to dunk when you can just put a spoon on it and enjoy it as it's supposed to be? So that's how Hugh and I really became great friends. But our relationship was further forged when mom and pops would do something that we really loved. They'd invite us over to their home. And it was in their home that I learned that meals aren't just to be consumed, there's something to be shared. You see, Pops, he was an artist, an entrepreneur, he was a thinker, and I can almost guarantee you that every single one of you that are sitting in this auditorium this morning have actually seen his handiwork at some point in your life. If you've been to Angel Stadium when a home run is hit, center field, there's this massive waterwork fountain that lights up. That's Pops' artwork. If you've been to Vegas and you've walked down the strip and you've seen the dancing fountains at the Bellagio, Pops coordinated and designed that. Treasure Island, the Finding Nemo ride, Pachanga, where I've played bingo. In first service, I realized I might not need to say that, but I'm saying it again. <laughs> I mean, all over international airports, malls, all throughout this world, Pops' fingerprints are there. And so he was about visually creating an experience, but he wasn't just doing that with waterworks and fountains. He would do that across a meal. Pops would begin with our first course. Really, it was like a cocktail hour. He would take out the finest scotch. Now bingo and scotch. 
if you want to complain, you can talk to, to Britt. He's right here. <laughs> he would pull out his finest scotch and pour a dram, and, and then afterwards he would bring forth Caesar salad. And up until meeting Pops, I thought Caesar salad was just croutons and some Parmesan and, you know, some dressing. But Pops actually had this recipe where he would make it all and he tried to teach it to me at some point, and I got lost on the anchovies bit, but I just know it was delicious. Some of you are like, there are anchovies in Caesar? Yes, in real Caesar. There are anchovies. And then after that, he would pull out the bread, which he would leave inside the foil so that it stayed warm, so that when you were eating the bread, the butter was still melting. And then we would typically have something like New York strip steaks, and then afterwards, maybe some cookies. And now I'm very, very hungry. So with Pops, it was a whole ordeal. It was all about an experience. And the reason why I I go there is because there's going to be a lot of food metaphors and analogies in this message because, again, this sermon is built around Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. And so I thought it would be appropriate for us to travel through John chapter 6 and look at it as though it were a three-course meal. And so we'll begin with the first course, which is the first bit of John chapter 6, Move to the second, the main part, the third. After that, I'm going to share a story about a gym next door, talk a little bit more about Pops, and then I've got two thoughts to conclude us. So let's begin the first course, the appetizer. John chapter 6, Jesus is recorded as feeding the 5,000. We have this amazing miracle, and the people here, the crowds, get what they Need. If you're following along your notes, that's your very first fill in. The people get what they need. And up until this point in John, Jesus is meeting very real physical needs. In John chapter 2, Jesus performs his first miracle as seen here. He produces the best wine, right? And so there's this wedding and they run out and so he produces the best wine. Wine. And then in John chapter 3, we see this man named Nicodemus, this religious leader, this Pharisee who comes to Jesus in the middle of the night. And Jesus meets him immediately. He gives him counsel there. And in John chapter 4 and 5, we have instances where there's this Samaritan woman and then an authority's son is healed. And all throughout these accounts, Jesus is meeting immediate needs, but beginning to reveal that there's something that goes beyond the temporal. There's something. And so here we are in John chapter 6, and large crowds have been listening to him, and he knows that they are hungry. And so what does he do? He takes five loaves of bread, two pieces of fish, and he does what the crowd would see as insane magic. And thousands are fed. Thousands. Scholars say that the 5,000 number probably only was counting the men. They, they said t- up to 20,000 people in this instance were given their fill. And so the way that I would categorize this first course, I'll have two statements for every course, is that this is incredible. And we don't need to spend too much time here. I know for myself, when I think about appetizers, I'm the type of person who ends up eating too much chips and salsa so that when the main course arrives, I'm, I'm almost like, I can't finish what's in front of me. Anyone else like that? Right? You eat way too much of the appetizer. This is a filling section, but there's more to come. So let's move 
from there. In between the feeding of the 5,000 and where we're going, Jesus walks on water. Uh, Pops never did that. But anyways, here we are, main course. They come to find Jesus. And what do you think they're looking for? This is a day removed from him feeding them tons of food. I don't know about you, but I get hungry every day. And so they come to Jesus expecting another meal. And so in first service, I read large chunks of this, but I'm just going to kind of go in and out of it. They found him on the other side of the sea and said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So they ask him, when did you get here? And he goes, let's get beyond the, the formalities. I know that you're coming because you want me to meet your needs again. He says, but do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. And in verse 28 it says, then they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? I love this. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. When I think about this section, this main course, I would say that the people think that they know what they want. But just like us, our hearts are a moving target. What we desire or crave one moment shifts in another moment. And so trying to aim after our own cravings, is, it proves pretty futile, Right? One moment relationally you want this, another moment you don't want that. One moment you're craving this, another moment you don't want that. Our whole society and culture is actually built off of that insatiable quest that we go, or excuse me, live in, whether it's our ambitions or what we want to do with our finances or what we want to experience. We are constantly looking for that thing or that time to fulfill us in some form or fashion. But any of us that have been alive for longer than a few minutes knows that it's difficult to be satisfied. See, what's interesting to me is that when I hear Jesus, when I see him here, and when I think about the context of my life, I've begun to realize that it's not these things that Jesus is condemning. He's not telling me that I can't have this or that, that I shouldn't experience or appreciate life. In fact, I think it's the exact opposite. I think that I've come to realize that the things that I crave and the things that I want, Jesus looks at those and he says, that's not really that good enough. That's kind of cheap for you to think that that clothing item is going to make you feel as happy the third time you put it on, if you ever get to that point. It's kind of cheap to think that after you've driven that car for 10,000 miles that it's going to feel the same way as when you drove it out of the lot. That's not enough. And yet we continue to live in this world where we have thought or confused real satisfying things with things that really don't fulfill us. And so Jesus goes on and he talks about himself and alludes to this time in their history, in the Israelites' history, where God provided 
provided for them. Because they bring up this instance where they say, you know, Moses gave us this manna from heaven. And Jesus says, I am that manna. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, Jesus says. And they said to him, verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. And so here we are in verse 35 where Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. How would I characterize this middle portion, this main course? This is incredibly bold. It's pretty bold of Jesus to say, I am the bread of life. But we hear that, and again, it doesn't sound that offensive, does it? We hear that, and we are accustomed to hearing that Jesus is going to sustain us and provide for our needs. But what is he getting to? Why is it that if you were to continue reading John chapter 6, his crowd is starting to get uncomfortable? They actually don't like what he is saying. What is going on here? If we move to the third course, this is how I would tag that. The people are offered what they know they do not want. Again, they want something immediate, and Jesus is speaking to something that goes beyond that. And then it just gets weird. It starts to get weird. They're grumbling about him, but let me read what happens in verse 52. Then the Jews began to dispute among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? You're like, where did that come from? You can fill in the gaps and read it yourself. So Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate and they died, but the one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while he was teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Anyone else uh, hear that and think that's a little odd? No? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. My wife, uh, she's awesome. She liked a series in college. It was novels. And I don't remember if she liked the movies, but I, I remember sitting through some of them. So maybe she did Twilight. You guys remember Twilight? Like Team Edward and stuff. Well, it's a movie about vampires and eating flesh and drinking blood, I think. This is a few thousand years before that. And it is not culturally acceptable. This is incredibly offensive. And the reason why this is offensive isn't just because it sounds cannibalistic. And by the way, just a history nugget, in the first and second century, when the Jesus movement, when the Christian movement was really starting to grow, outsiders would hear these things and Christians were actually being accused of being cannibals. And so it seemed like this cult... Outsiders would hear passages like this and think those crazies in there are finding ways to eat flesh and drink blood, even though we know that's not the case. But here we have precedent for why folks might think weird things were going on. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. 
You want to know why else this is offensive, however? This is offensive because the audience that Jesus is speaking to, these Jews, in their law, it was prohibited for them to partake or have blood touch their lips to eat blood. They couldn't enjoy a rare steak. They weren't allowed that type of food. Why? If you look in the passages that I cite in your notes, that Genesis section, that Leviticus section, it's because the blood of the animal was the sign of its life. And so because there was sacredness in that blood, to partake of that blood would be unclean. And so here Jesus is in their synagogue, and he is saying, drink my blood. I didn't come up with a way to do this, but if I were to say an incredibly offensive thing in this church, and all of you were to leave, that is the parallel of what Jesus did. And again, I'm not going to do that, but I'm sure I could find something to say that would warrant all of you needing to leave. That's what Jesus just did. So let me uh, take a little detour here and talk about the gym next door, and then we'll come back to this. Several months ago, I was leaving on a Wednesday night, and as I was getting to my car, I saw next door these garage doors lifted, and I heard pumping music, and I peeked around the corner to look inside, and I saw tons of gym equipment. And I thought, wow, I wonder what's going on. And so I hopped in my car, and I thought, I'll just mind my own business, and started driving down Winchester. And as I'm approaching Winchester and Diaz, I think, you know what? I'm going to make an illegal turn in the middle of the road, and I'm going to go see what's happening. So I make an illegal U-turn, and I drive into that parking lot, and I walk inside. And inside, there are guys on lifts, and one of them sees me. It's about 10 o'clock at night. He comes down the lift, and he says, hey, what's up, man? What are you looking for? And I'm just marveling. This is a huge facility, and I'm just going, what's, what's going on here? And he says, well, there's this gym that's opening up. It's called Self-Made. This is actually the headquarters. They've got tons all over. But if, if you want to come back tomorrow, Miguel, the owner, should be here. And so I said, great. And so the very next day during my lunch break, I walked across our parking lot and I walk inside. And I'm a little bit nervous, right? I don't think that I belong. It's, it's an intimidating looking place. And so I walk in, and sure enough, about 40 or so yards away, I see this gentleman, and he's just huge, okay? He's like Brit huge, like just huge, <laughs> intimidating, trying to catch up to the rev. So he sees me, you know, this like frail human being. <laughs> he's like, what's up, man? What, what's going on? And I said, man, I, I just had to walk over. I was here last night. They said uh, Miguel might be here. And I'm like, yeah, I'm Miguel. Like, man, that is so cool. And I just asked, how did you get here? What's your story? Like, how are we talking right now? And he proceeds to just start sharing. I mean, his life story, this rags to riches kind of tale. And midway through, he says, man, this is pretty therapeutic, sharing my story. I'm going, yeah, I appreciate hearing it. And so as he's closing up, his time. He says, you know what, why don't you come back on a Saturday? It's a personal training gym, so you, can, you know, people can't come here without memberships, but Saturdays are open, and maybe you'll meet one of our personal trainers, and, and you'll get to, to get connected and work out. And, and so I think about that, and I go, man, thanks so much for the offer, but as I'm walking away, I'm secretly bummed out 
because the thought of paying a personal trainer to me is just, oh, I don't have that kind of money. I did personal training for years in my early 20s, and I know that it's expensive, and I'm just thinking, man, I guess there's just going to be this nice gym next door that I'm never going to get to go to. <laughs> Woe is me. So as I'm walking, I get bold one more time, and I turn around, and I say, hey, Miguel, this might seem a little bit audacious and crazy, but would it be okay if I just worked out? And he said, dude, absolutely. And that marks the beginning of me and Britt and our high school pastor Mojo getting to spend time right across our parking lot at this gym called Self Made. And I am so grateful to Miguel and his wife, Autumn, and the friendship that I now have with them. And it's super cool getting to spend time with them and pray with them. But as I have begun this journey of working out again, I have been encountered with some things that I realize I probably need to change. You see, there's something about fitness where if you start doing it and you really want to go for it, you should probably watch what you're putting into your body. And if I were to go over to Miguel and say, hey, this is what I've been eating, you know, four days in a row of Taco Bell, which I had been doing things like that and trying to break record and go for the fifth day, I'm sure that he or his personal trainers or Autumn, they'd say, Jed, that is terrible. I mean, I would hope that they would call that out pretty bluntly. And I could get defensive about that, but here's what I know is true. When it comes to what we need to hear in life, oftentimes it will actually be a little bit offensive. Because what's offensive is meant to disrupt our way of thinking and how we have just kind of gone into these rhythms or these patterns of living and being that aren't the best for us. And when you think about what disruption is, even from a physical sense, when we work out what is happening inside our body, it's disrupting our physical homeostasis. It is taking fibers and tearing apart at them. And it is absolutely uncomfortable, not just in the moment, but afterwards when you're sore and you can barely shower. But what we know is if we were to continue through that, that time under tension and the right nutrients and recovery makes it so that new things can come and healthy things can be achieved. And when we look at Jesus and what he is saying here when he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, he is not talking about literally taking a bite out of his forearm, even though that seemed to be what these people thought he might be saying. They're going, this guy's a whack job, so they start to leave. No, he is alluding to what will take place in about a year. And you've heard about this last summer. We have these communion tables where later on Britt will transition us to partake in communion. And at communion, Jesus talks to his disciples about this bread which represents his body and this blood which represents, or excuse me, this cup which represents his blood. And that foreshadows a sacrifice where something offensive will happen, where he's placed on a cross and crucified executed terribly. And as we celebrated a month ago or less than a month ago at Easter, resurrection. 
That's offensive to think that Jesus would offer up himself. But when we really look at it, doesn't that seemingly most offensive thing become the most beautiful thing? This grisly death on a cross would make room for this empty tomb and this invitation to this new life. And so when Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life, what he is setting up for us is this invitation to see that there is so much more that whatever we conceived that life was, even though it might seem comfortable the way that we were doing it, if If we accept his invitation and allow ourselves to be disrupted over and over again by his grace, we will see that life with him is so much more fulfilling than all the other things that we tried to fill ourselves with. So I have two thoughts here. The first is this. Jesus is making this invitation. He is presenting us with this opportunity to make a decision, but we get to do as we seem fit or deem fit. Jesus goes to his disciples after thousands have decided to turn their backs on him, and he says, do you want to go as well? And again, maybe you're sitting here, and you hear those words, and inside you're asking yourself, do I want to leave? Maybe it's not even a question. Maybe you're sitting here and you are wondering how much longer you can take part in this. You have already questioned its legitimacy. You've wondered at times whether or not there's actual facts here, or if it's just emotion, or if it's just this movement that you have been immersed in because you grew up in America. And so maybe you're asking yourself, is this valid? Is Jesus actually who he claims to be? And as you hear that question, you want to follow through, get up, turn around, and never come back. I'm so glad that Jesus asks that probing of a question, because I think it gives us the opportunity to be honest with ourselves and with one another. If you think because you walked into a church building that there is not an ounce of doubt or skepticism that exists here, you are fooling yourself. And it would be silly of us to pretend that as human beings, there does, that does not exist. I mean, the reason why Jesus has to say to his disciples, you have little faith, doesn't that assume that there is a lack of faith there? Isn't it amazing in that encounter in Mark chapter 9, verse 13, where that man says, I believe, help me with my unbelief. It's here. That's not how it finishes. Uh, some, some might say, well, Jed, what about verse 45? 
or 46, where Jesus says, not anyone, excuse me, 44, no one can come to me unless drawn by the Father who sent me, and I will raise that person up on the last day. Some of us hear that, and we go, doesn't it sound like God is the one that's doing all the work here, that he's doing all the drawing? We really don't have a choice in this. You know, the Greek word for that, the drawn there refers to actually a dragging. I love that, a dragging and a persuading. So it says, unless the Father drags us, essentially. And I love that because it implies that we fight and there's resistance. But a few verses down in verse 46, not anyone who has seen the Father except the one who has seen God has seen the Father. But verse 47, very truly I tell you, whoever believes has eternal life. It implies that there is a duality to this act of belief. That God draws or drags or persuades, but belief, this faith, this pistis, it is accepting that persuasion. And so at some point, we release ourselves and surrender to what God has been doing. This does not mean that we are responsible for our salvation. No, it's the exact opposite. But to think that there isn't a surrendering of ourselves to this God who is wooing and pulling and inviting and even dragging us towards him is to pretend that there is not love in this choice and relationship. It is there. And I love that Jesus presents us with that type of opportunity to make that decision. So as I begin to conclude and go towards that last point, I want to share about Pops a little bit more and then a section in Deuteronomy. A month or so ago, that Sunday morning where all the orange balloons were up, if you were here, it was a Team World Vision Sunday where we were supporting tons of our folks who were running in the LA Marathon. It was a beautiful thing. We had raised, I think, almost $130,000 for clean water in Africa. I love that that's a part of our church. I mean, with Soul Hope today, how cool that we have yet another initiative where people across the other side of the globe can tangibly see and feel that God is doing something. Well, that Sunday morning as I was preaching, a lot of people didn't know that I was just trying to make it through that day. Because a year prior to that, exactly a year on that same Sunday morning, again, a World Vision Sunday where Britt was running the marathon and I was teaching, I finished the message, it, it went okay, and then we're out for lunch. And as we are about to receive our food, I get a phone call and I see Huey. And Pops had been in surgery the week before. We thought it was, uh, you know, going to go just fine. Uh, but there were some complications with his surgery, and he was in the hospital for an extended amount of time. And as I received this phone call, I picked it up, and I knew very quickly that something was wrong. Huey was essentially yelling at me, and I got from the table, and he said, Brew, uh, Pops just coated blue. He just coated blue. Please, please, please pray. And I take Danny, our middle school keys, uh, pastor's keys, I hop in his car, I drive back to church, I get in mine, and I, I go out to Orange County the whole time that I'm driving. I'm just going, God, please, no. You know, that Sunday night was the beginning of about two weeks in Orange County, but within two days on a Tuesday, uh, Mallory and I and Pops' his family and all this, 
stood in a hospital room as we watched him be disconnected. He had gone brain dead during the course of coding blue. And I can remember being there as I have at many other points in my life when faced with tragedy. And I asked God again, what are you doing? And if Jesus were to come to me in that moment and say, I can tell you're troubled. Are you ready to give up now? Is this the time when you're going to turn back on me? You know, I might look at him and say, I am this close. But remember how I said that Pops was all about sharing this experience over a meal? And I loved that Pops also was a person who partook of the bread of life. He didn't just teach me about meals. He taught me what it looked like to have an honest and dynamic relationship with Jesus. And as I think about that experience, I'm drawn to this section in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a recounting of what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness where God feeds them this manna. And as Jesus' teaching in the synagogue was where we were in John chapter 6, every person in the crowd was aware of this reference. I mean, they in fact were the ones that brought up the idea of manna. They're the ones that said, Moses did this for us. What essentially are you going to do? And then Jesus pulled out the I am the bread of life. I am that manna from heaven. But I want to show you one little thing here in this Deuteronomy chapter 8 passage that really speaks to something that's profound to me. Verse 1 says, This entire commandment that I command you today you must diligently observe so that you may live and increase and go in and occupy the land that the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you to know what it was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you by letting you hunger and by feeding you as manna with which neither you nor your ancestors were acquainted in order to make you understand that one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord." Maybe you're thinking, well, it's the Gospel of John. Are we going to talk about how Jesus, the beginning of John, is referred to as the Word? We could go there, but that's not what I would like to point out. See, in verse 2, it says that there was a testing so that God would see what was in their hearts. And what I love about that is the Hebrew word that we have translated to testing can actually be more accurately portrayed as to experience what was in your hearts. You see, when we think about our lives and the experiences that we have, sometimes we feel as though it's just passively happening to us, like it's just taking place and God is just setting things up so that we can do one thing or the other. But the language there assumes that in the 40 years of the wilderness, God is not just saying, you're going to go through this so I can test and see whether or not you fail. He is saying there's an experience to be had for them and for him. 
Because Jesus is determined to share the experience. That's the final thing that I would put forth for you today. That Jesus, when he offers, when he says, I am the bread of life, what he is saying is, I am the bread of life. And life is not just a happy, fluffy thing. Life, for all that it is, includes joys and pain, celebration and struggle, anxiety, and release, all those things, there is that. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is saying, I am determined to share this experience with you because I am the point of this. I am the one who is taking you towards me. And the whole way in this long wilderness, in this stretch of time where you will wonder, what is this and why? We can remember that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is being honest with you and me. He's not being trite. He's not being simple. He is speaking to significance. This is real, and he is really here for us. Let's pray.